having worked in basketball and going through, you know, three RM back squat, bench, uh, chin, uh, deadlift, and then some, you know, power derivatives with contact mat and force plates and those types of things. I just naturally assumed that that would be what those guys need, and I couldn't be more wrong. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. Today's episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is with Nathan Spencer, someone that I've spoken to for a long time while he was at the Orlando Magic and latterly as head strength coach at the Orlando Magic, but more recently with the New South Wales Institute of Sport as a senior strength and conditioning coach. And today I am really interested to talk to Nathan around assessments, choosing the most appropriate assessments that are going to really drive decision making in programming and interventions. So it's a really interesting chat and someone that's been obviously involved in a jumping sport in basketball and that journey from collecting lots of things, going in maybe a little bit naive into this environment that jump assessments happen all the time and then pairing things back and going simple and making sure that information really drives that decision making. So really interesting episode with Nathan. I'm delighted to get him on. We also get some reflections on his time in the NBA and then what he would do differently should he go into a similar job again. So really interesting chat with Nathan, which I'm sure you'll love. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Play. Play is the leader in high-performance athletic flooring and strength equipment globally. So with offices in the US, Australia and the UK, Play provides an end-to-end experience by collaborating with organisations through their own proprietary formula to create world-class environments for coaches and athletes. Play's Achieve 18mm Rubber and Attack Turf have been at the cornerstone of elite training facilities for now over a decade with the addition of the new Icon X rack range. Play are once again set to elevate the industry. On the 23rd of April 2022, Play will be hosting their first UK lab of the year in collaboration with Loughborough University. Play will be joined by some exceptional speakers from elite sport, industry and academia with a huge breadth of knowledge and experience. Listeners and supporters of Pace Performance Podcast are able to obtain an exclusive 20% discount using the code SPORTSMITH20 when registering at playacademy.com forward slash play hyphen labs hyphen Loughborough. And this episode is also sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. So without further ado, over to the episode with Nathan. Nathan Spencer, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. 
Thanks, mate. Very, uh, very humbling to be invited on. Looking forward to having a chat, and yeah, appreciate appreciate the invite and the good work that you're doing in our space as well. No, thank you, thank you very much. It's um, it's gonna be an interesting one because you've had lots of different experiences across lots of different environments. Most recently, the MBA, and then coming back home to uh, to NSWIS, New South Wales Institute of Sport, working with a cup under a couple of previous or former uh, podcast guests, Alex Natera and Simon Harris. So it's good, to, great to get you on. Just before we do dive into the stuff that we're going to have a little chat around, which is around um, some of the things that you did uh, in Orlando, would you mind just giving us a bit of a brief background and yeah, info on that? Yeah, various, yep, the various experiences you've had? Yep, yep. Uh, as you said, very fortunate, I guess, to work in a number of different environments, domestically, internationally, with elite, semi-elite, um, pro, weekend warrior, uh, and now institute setting, and then also you know, privately as well. So definitely taught me a lot about you know, managing up, managing down, um, stakeholders, reporting in different, in, in different scenarios, and then also too, uh, just you know, the fact that the goalposts never change. You're still here to, to provide us a, you know, a, a service support to, to the athletes that, that you work with and you know a lot of great influences and, and mentors and expose exposures to, to different systems and in every single place i've learned you know a lot about myself as a, as a coach but as a person and as a you know, as well so um yeah it, it's been it, it's been a, a a different journey you know starting out in uh nrl junior pathway systems as you know volunteer intern honorarium like everyone i think sort of does um before transitioning into, you know, the NBL um, with Yellowara Hawks, uh, and and or during all this time, still working you know, full time in a clinical role as a clinical EP initially with hip and knee, uh, back um, orthopedic surgery re- rehabilitation, and then um, after completing my masters of high performance sport at ACU, you know, mutual connections with Chad Kalasic put us in touch with some people in the in the, in the states, being Dave Tenney and. He was at the magic at the time, and that led me over to the states for a four-year period, and then yeah, now back, back here, home soil, um, at Enswiss, yeah, with with a, a great group of people doing some really good work, as you said, headed up by Alex and Tara for the sports science department, and and you know, Simon Harry's overseeing the strength and conditioning department. So really, really enjoying my time working with uh, women's water polo, which is foreign, you know, female athletes and and water sport. Never done that, but um, loving every minute of it. Nice, mate. So what's the transition been like from, I'm guessing, a super, super hectic MBA schedule, which probably never stops, to an institute environment? It's been slow, which has been, I guess, that the pace is, yeah, as you said, drastically reduced, which has been welcomed. Um, I feel like I have a relationship with my wife for the first time in, in four, four and a half, nearly five years. So that's nice. Um the work-life balance has definitely, definitely shifted, and you know the amount of face-to-face work I have with the athletes is significantly reduced. Given that you know it's in an institute setting, it's obviously you know, they're not they're not professional, they're not paid, um, they're elite but amateur in the sense of working towards Olympic campaigns, and obviously Paris is you know, we'll knocking on our door, and you know, almost tomorrow it'll feel like um, so that has really given me a lot of additional time to, to, to invest into other projects, whether it be um, 
hard skill development, which is a, a big piece of what we're doing here at NSWIS with our strength science journey, a, a more targeted approach to, to CPD, which um, I'm really proud to be a part of and and passion projects as, as well on the side. So um, just really enjoying the, the, the change of pace and, and not being on the go, as you say, said all the time and, and you know, landing at two or three o'clock in the morning and then back into work at 9am and, and, you know, having an 82 game schedule over a very over six months of the year is, is quite congested and you know there's a lot of, a lot of highs with it but um it can be difficult to navigate at times as well and 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 you know, especially during covid and the bubble and all those types of things that i've gone through with not having a single season which was the same um that was really you know, just through different challenges to navigate throughout that throughout the time i was there as well but you know, generally generally a, a, a great great experience I'd like to dive into the, some of the challenges and some of the realities of, of working in the NBA because it, especially here, and I'm guessing it's the same in Oz, you probably look at American sports and there's a lot of practitioners out there who would just kill for the chance to, to get out there and experience that. And not to say that it doesn't live up to expectation. I'm sure a lot of the time it does, but there's obviously some challenges to that. And speaking to people who are in the NBA currently who have contracts with organizations, maybe... Uh, we'll we'll tell you the truth, but maybe just err on the side of caution with with saying. I'm not saying that you're going to go to town on, like talking about this or that. But I just for someone that stepped away for whatever reason and gone and gone back to to your current to the role that you've currently got. What are some of the challenges and realities of working in that type of environment? It's a question that I get asked all the time, uh, and. Having having to answer that now uh, on a few occasions, um, the best way I can sum it up is that, ironically, the the IRS classifies the NBA as an entertainment industry for tax purposes. So you you, you pay your, your taxes based on the entertainment rates, um, and I think that speaks a lot about the way the league is set up in that it's an entertainment based you know, game in that. The TV revenue rights are, are obviously astronomical, second in the US, obviously, to, to the NFL, which, again, is, is huge. Um, the players have such a high share of that. So to get the share, they need to play the games. So to play the games, you have a high schedule. Um, high schedule, you know, the players obviously then have a significant amount of control in the off-season. With, you know, with, they want their downtime and they, they want to play, they want to earn the money. Um, and the staff earn the money as well. You know that that, that all comes back to resources, to you know, staff budgets, and and the league can excel in a, a number of different ways because of the revenue that it generates. So there's so many positives that come that come out of that. But as a result, the way that the you know, the CBA is set up, and the way that you know, even geographical location, which you know, if you're not familiar with the US, Orlando is in the southeastern corner of, of the states, and in, in in Florida, and you know, the, the simple rule of the, the one AM rule with this, the CBA, which I think now has been changed to two two o'clock in the morning, where if you land in a market city for a game or for a, uh, a training session, whatever it might be, you can't officially mandate it. It has, it, but it also doesn't count as an off day. So teams like ourselves in the Miami Heat, and I think team that probably had it the worst to be honest would be say the New Orleans Pelicans where they're in a central time zone but playing in the Western Conference so they're back and forth between you know Mountain and then um, Pacific in LA quite frequently you're very rarely returning home before one o'clock in the morning so you 
you, there's the sleep deprivation and and performance effects that come on the come off the back of that, obviously. But then your your ability to affect change as a result of those rules is dependent on where you're located. So, you know, arguably teams say like Milwaukee, who are in the Central Time Zone but play on the Eastern Conference, you know, they could be playing in you know, New York for a 7 p.m. tiff off and, and still be getting back home landing before 1 a.m. So the following day either can count as an off day or, or uh, you know, they can use it for training or you know, players can get the additional sleep that they need. So there's those subtle nuances that are that impact every team um, differently. You know, yes, you fly charter jet everywhere you go. There's only a couple of teams that own that own planes, but there's only nine uh, chartered aircraft through Delta that the NBA and not quite the NFL, but the Major League Soccer and and baseball um, share, and so do some collegiate teams as well. So when you're trying to book flights, uh, it's done the moment the schedule's released, essentially. So you, you know what you're doing every day for the whole year. Um, and you don't have much wriggle room there. And you look at what's ha- what's happened recently with hurricanes and weather delays and all those things that you just don't understand the implications of until you're actually in it. Um, so there's some of the things that were really opening for me and, and uh, I still to this day can you know, recount some you know, specific instances where you know, we think we're going to land at a certain place and, and we just didn't because it was – ice and de-icing on a plane and then there was high winds and all, you know, just all these things that you just don't you, know, you don't account for. But as I said, until you're actually in it, um, you perhaps don't get a, a true gauge on what it's, what, it, what it's actually like. Just that schedule and everyone, like you say, at the start of the season, you know exactly what you're doing w- within reason because of, you know, there's always obviously things that come up like hurricanes and icing and de-icing and things like that. But is that a benefit that you know exactly what you're doing so you can to a certain extent probably i don't know 80 90 percent of the time know what days you're in and what days you're off and just to compare that to something like football here like i remember managers not telling players what the schedule is more than a couple of days in advance because firstly we didn't know what the schedule was where you're going to get knocked out of a, a domestic cup or um and just kind of the, the mindset of keeping athletes on on the toes so depending on results and all that kind of stuff but is it was the schedule sorted ahead of time a a slight benefit on that front or or, or not i think so i think it also depends on your playing group and your and your roster in my opinion um yeah these guys are like they're incredibly skilled and they're incredibly gifted and they have great work ethics to improve the skill element of the game because obviously the game relies on can you shoot or can, can, can you can you not and your ability to create space to, to score is so critical so quite often players will want to do the extra work to add a weapon to their you know, add a tool to their toolbox um, so essentially every day is is on but what the day comprises you, you can you can plan uh, but there's a lot of variability within that because of playing rotation with a, you know, with a squad of 15, 15 players, you could be one turned ankle away from a, an athlete who you know, may only see no minutes or three or four minutes a game if it's a, if it's a blowout to them being in a high rotation. So while the overall plan, maybe a skeleton structure, what actually happens on a day-to-day generally won't get planned out until 48 hours or 24 hours in, in advance and quite often – you know, the final decision would be made post game 
based on what what, what information we had available and, and obviously how you know coaches are responding to things and how the athletes are and and I think that they're those conversations that we have intuitively regardless of what environment you're working in. When we were batting ideas back and forth around how I could drag the most out of this of the experience the NBA experience from you, you mentioned staff staff and staff income and that side of things which made maybe from a management point of view as that's a period at, at, uh, in Orlando made that difficult in terms of managing all this kind of stuff. Can you give us some insight into that as well? I think it's one of those things that it's, as I said before, like the, the revenue that the league generates, like it, it is dissipated obviously in you know, players first, but um, staffing sizes are just getting increasingly larger and larger and larger. And, and I think where it is is interesting is the way that, um, the CBA is is then set up is that every team has to have a head athletic trainer and a head strength conditioning coach, and I think you're starting to see some some job titles that are created where they don't. It's essentially the same role, but they don't fit that that job title. So there's some things in, in that management and performance directors and those types of things have to make sure that they have in place to still you know, align the staff model with the CBA, even though that may you know may or may not reflect what the organization needs needs at the time and i think that very fortunate that the team that i was a part of it was almost a one-to-one staff to player ratio you have 15 full-time athletes with two on two-way contracts so 17 um, those others who would rotate between the g league and, and the nba team uh, and to almost have one-to-one interaction you know you're allowed to do to do so much and you know the the resources that were allocated to the performance staff was you know, second to second to none. So, uh, while time for maybe formal CPD and those types of things are limited, just because of how you know uh, conducive the, the, the schedule is, you, you're given the opportunity to you know speak to some amazing people you know, privately or uh, go and find resources to solve a specific problem if if that's the case. So. Uh, it's it's one of those things, as I said, that every every team is is different. But I think that the the pool of of money allocated towards staff will just continue to to, to grow. Uh, and I, I don't think it's any any secret that you know, people in in the NBA and the NFL again from TV revenue that that's why some of the wages are perhaps some of the highest going around. Um, and interesting than looking at some of the the salary surveys and things like that that you that you're obviously a part of with um, you know, things in the, in, in the UK and, and within Europe, um, those things would be perhaps interesting to, to gather and collect. And, and you know, the thing that I think play, plays a little bit of, of a part of it as well is uh, just where you, know, where you live. You know, Florida was, uh, was in, income, income tax-free, which you know, meant that a lot of the money that I that I earned was in my back pocket. I had to pay taxes based on states I worked in for certain amounts of days because that, that's the way the entertainment tax taxes are set up. But uh, you know, the money in my back pocket was of it would have been considerably less if I had been in say you know the LA or um, New York or you know one of those other other states. So there's some things that again you probably don't consider um, when you're looking at roles in the US just because of how the the financial system. Um, works i guess it's interesting question yeah yeah absolutely it's one thing i did 
do quite a bit of work to try to get a similar survey as I've done with academy football and women's football and senior football here in the UK rugby league rugby union in the NBA. But there's because of the situation of where teams are located, they will have different weighting based on cost of living, which is how the uh, and I've sp- I spoke to you about this. I think um, you probably told me all this. So I'm telling you back. Um, so which made it quite difficult to actually get a decent comparison if it was ever going to happen in the first place. And I think and it does. Season, yeah. So even the little things where car insurance, car insurance in Florida, in Orlando specifically, is astronomical. Um, so like how do, like how do you account for those little things to go towards cost of living and. Um, a wage of fifty thousand dollars in one state is not fifty thousand in, in another. So there's there's probably not a you know an equal distribution based on your specific role. It's it definitely fluctuates based on you know, where you live and 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 also what what your role is as well. Of course, right, mate. Let's dive into the technical technical stuff or more technical stuff. So from a monitoring profiling perspective. I suppose that the, the <clears throat> excuse me the first place to start is how to understand what athlete needs to Im- an athlete needs to improve physically, and the assessments that you would go about um, performing with these athletes to try to understand that. Would you mind just giving us a bit of an intro onto the, the your journey with this in the NBA to try to understand what athletes do need from you in terms of physical characteristics, so then you can plan interventions and go through this go through the process. Yeah, I definitely uh, ate. I had to eat a lot of humble pie when I first moved over. Um, whether it was arrogance or naivety, or I think you know, rightly or wrongly, we're, we're told that the systems that we operate within here in Australia, and I think the UK, from a performance sports setting, are perhaps more advanced than than others. Um, we have this illusion that what we do is really, really good, and it is. But we can learn a lot from other environments, particularly the US. So having worked in basketball and going through, you know, three RM, back squat, bench, uh, chin, uh, deadlift, and then some, you know, power derivatives with contact mat and force plates and those types of things, I just naturally assumed that that would be what those guys need. And I couldn't be more uh, more wrong. Luckily, that my first role as performance and rehab coach stepping over there, you know, working with a guy like Luke Story who had – quite extensive experience in in basketball, obviously with his time at, at P3 and his understanding of kinetic and kinematic variables that contributed to, you know, direct performance outcomes to improve jump height. You know, some of those, the things that he's imparted on me, I'll never, I'll never forget. The, the first thing that hit me in the face was just how skilled these guys are and, and needing to remember that basketball, but the NBA specifically, it's a skill-based sport and they're drafted because they're gifted. So the athlete's perception and weighting on the need for, say, strength and power development may not be as imperative as what it is, say, here in Australia in the NBL where those guys are still great athletes but they've also experienced rugby codes and swimming and they're probably more a multi-sport athlete and had a different strength training background. So you need to identify obviously the physical properties and characteristics that you're trying to trying to improve but the cultural backgrounds and and experience of the of the athletes come in come into play so and ironically you know basketball players jump all the time on the court but they still have a, a you know a, a bit of an aversion to jump jump testing so there's a lot of 
you know, education that goes on there and, and you know, trying to get intent out of them. And I guess part of our the evolution, I guess, of, of some of those things can go from how do you get intent out of an athlete? You can go a counter movement jump to vertex or like say an abkalob jump, obviously, um, to drive intent with an external cue. But then does that truly tell you about their jump strategy and true kinetic and kinematic variables of, of how you're going to intervene and do you get an accurate gauge of interlim asymmetries and obviously with that you want to maybe be looking at a more standard counter movement jump or a, or say a squat jump but how do you get intent out of, out of those out of those jumps so they're debates that you know you'd probably find yourself having quite you know, internally and within within your department quite uh, quite regularly and then if you're able to determine the appropriate variables on, on, on say jump strategy and making sure that they hit those markers within a, within a jump, then your outputs are perhaps more, more meaningful. And I think that's something that then transitioning to working with a guy you know, more recently in, in Matt Tabernar, who in you know, our space is obviously very well, well known for his work with you know, the control chaos continuum and return to play and rehab, but he's an incredible strength coach. And his understanding of of you know the the, the properties and, and demands of a game and how we manipulate those things to work towards those outcomes is is one of the best I've ever I've ever had the pleasure of working with. So um, they're, they're some of the little little things, and then you know, you, your assessment can also be dependent on rookie or a vet. You know, um, quite frequently guys get drafted, as I said, because they're gifted and they may have never touched a barbell in their life. So it's selecting you know, mechanical mechanical stresses where it's a, say a, a rep max for one, for two, for three, or even reps to failure. Um, is that appropriate? It, it's, it's, it's understanding the athlete first before you go through the, uh, the assessment piece. And that was sort of, the, the I guess, the, the start of it. Um, and then even like talking about draftees, you know, they have a lot going on initially. So from an assessment and then obviously a prescription standpoint, they could be one and done fresh out of college where they're then struggling with or could be struggling with you know, life admin, it's it's eating habits, it's being accustomed to perhaps living away from home and having to, to live independently for the first time. So um, you, know, you, you may or may not find that some of the – the assessments that you want to do from a strength and power diagnostic standpoint are actually going to be truly meaningful, meaningful because they just don't put in as much and just good, simple programming. Um, you know, the, the, the keep it simple, stupid approach is what is going to have the best outcome for those young guys, young guys coming through. Um, so as I said, just, just, just keep it finding then just keeping the assessment and prescription processes very simple. Um, and I think rarely if you had walked into the weight room at the, at the Orlando Magic, you know, it was very sim- a very, very simple program, but a lot of thought process going into why they were doing what they were, what they were doing. So from your research, your experience, your talking to people, having the influence of, of various different members of staff, what physical characteristics do athletes need to perform the highest level in the NBA and probably more importantly or as well to perform the tactical requirements that your coach required because that's obviously going to play a massive part in what you actually need from each athlete 
yeah, there's obviously a huge cognitive piece to that. And that's something I think that there's a, a big learning transition with those with those athletes, particularly they come out of out of college and then into uh, into a league where they go from playing 20 games to playing 82. Uh, and because the incidence of training is so small, because you know you do the math, it's it's 2.4 or 2.5 games um, a week. I think even more. Sorry, a game every two two and a half days. Sorry. Uh, so with the CBA and geographical location, everything else we've sort of already touched on, your incidence of training and ability to retain information is, is so small that the, the, the team film sessions and, and the tactical element is, is done on a game day. So there's a huge learning piece to that. So you know, having an ability to determine, you know, one, how an athlete learns, but then also the right teaching strategy for those things can be really, really important. And obviously that's, that's up to the coaching staff and and the support staff specialised in those areas to to determine what's best for, for those athletes. Physically, it's it is it's asking that question of what characteristics do they possess or do they need to possess to to play the game of NBA basketball? And if we think about okay, what does the practice or what does a game look like? You can think about okay, there's accelerations, decelerations, change of directions, a lot of jumps. It's a 48 minute game played over a 28 meter court and there's you know, two and a half hours with a lot of stoppages so it's high intensity intermittent nature but that doesn't really too much tell me too much about the, the neuromuscular demands of the of the game so if you think quite simply it's just force and velocity and velocity with stretch shortening cycle capacity so as you then start to think about okay they're the characteristics i need to assess how do i assess strength how do I assess velocity and specifically stretch shortening cycle? You can be looking at slow versus fast stretch shortening cycle properties. And, and then if I'm thinking slow, we've got obviously squat jump or counter movement jump um, variations to consider, given that the game is you know, it's, it's running, it's jumping, it's there's eccentric utilization there. We want to be looking at some eccentric derivatives of jumps. So we're probably going to be more biased towards counter movement jumps than we would be, say, to squat jumps. And then from a fast stretch shortening cycle capacity, we can obviously go down the route of taking stuff from perhaps Matt Jordan where he will go through a series of different drop jumps to look at you know, reactive strength properties or looking more specifically at, say, a 10-5 hop and whether we're going down bilateral or single limb derivatives of those tests, um, you know, multi-planar. There's a thousand ways to, to skin a cap, but what I think is really important is that you're picking the tests that are then reflective of those characteristics. We've just outlined a few of them there. And then the, the test battery may be athlete specific. Um, could be based on position. Obviously, your bigger guys are, are probably going to be playing a more slower grinding style of game, a bit more physical in the paint. Um, and you know, external, uh, ex- external monitoring with, you know, say, LPS may not truly reflect the demands of the game. As, as it would say for a for, for a point guard uh, and I know there's some some stuff that's coming out there's some uh, literature within the NBL and European leagues nothing so much within the NBA but we're seeing those positional discrepancies with, with external demands um, so the strength and power profile also needs to supplement supplement that and then you know the final piece of that then too is is asking you know what methodologies impact those properties um, and I guess where where it can evolve to, given the given the schedule that 
you're faced with is that you, I think we find ourselves asking the question is, do we understand the game? And with, again, being able to truly assess what the internal external response is of an NBA game or of an, of an, NBA, of an NBA training session, um, what does it do to the neuromuscular system? So how do we assess that pre and post? And then what does that do to, to an individual athlete or to a group of athletes? And is that actually their profile? And can we actually intervene based on what the game would, or what a training session would, would do to them? And obviously part of that's just being smart with progressive overload, but then looking at specific training methods in order to optimise the adaptations that occur naturally within a game or within a training session. So would I you think do... Go on, mate, sorry, I missed that. Yes, I think that's something that we we think about too. I, I certainly have thought about uh, too late because we go in with a preconceived idea about, okay, I, I, I run this system, um, but this system may not necessarily meet the demands of, of what the athletes, one, who the athlete is or what, what the sport actually is. And I'm going to run a 5-3-1 and we're going to you know, bench dead back on these days, uh, back squat on these days and – we're going to hit 95% of a 1RM two weeks out from competition and it's very, very rigid. Um, but the chaotic nature of the of the, the NBA, just you have to be adaptable is, is the biggest thing. So shifting, shifting in an understanding and, and that approach um, has, has helped me enormously and it's a, it's a current approach I'm taking now working with, uh, with women's water polo. Because again, you can't... You can't can't uh, sorry, you can't you can't assess demands of of, of swimming. There's no there's, what we what we have a tendency to rely on in in GPS and heart rate and those types of things. The the, the technology just isn't there. So how do I assess what a what a training session, what a game actually does to those athletes? So um, some similarities there as well. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Nathan. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we have a little chat around the interventions which took place post assessments and how that changed over time based on the assessment changes. We also have a little chat around his reflections on his time in the NBA, and that's really interesting for me, that last five minutes of this episode. So, brilliant part two coming up. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. Kitman Labs is sport's first technology company to offer a complete solution that includes innovative analytics and an advanced athlete management platform that is supported by a team of sports, technology and data science experts with over 200 years experience. Kitman Labs is leading the evolution of sports performance, partnering with over 150 elite teams across the NFL, NHL, MLB, AFL, EPL and Championship Rugby. Through advanced statistical analysis, rigorous scientific research and unparalleled industry experience, they've architected the world's only analytics platform that helps sports teams to truly harness their data and uncover the influences behind performance optimization and injury risk. To find out more about Kitman Labs, visit kitmanlabs.com or follow them on social media at Kitman Labs. And now back to the episode with Nathan. From a neuromuscular point of view, pre and post, you mentioned, first part of the question is, were you assessing or trying to assess what was going on pre-post games, pre-post training? And second part of the question, was it a shock to you or did you struggle 
with having to be so flexible rather than running, I run this system. And I suppose the first question potentially leads to the second one because it may allow you to have some data to be flexible and to guide you. So yeah, sorry, two two questions thrown at you there within one. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yep. Uh, first question in, I mean, yeah, yes. As as practitioners, you're inquisitive, so you want to try to provide the best practice for the athletes that you're working with. So it's it's within you know your instincts to answer those questions. Um, whether or not you're actually capable of doing it is a whole other thing because of what we've what we've already spoken about and and uh, logistically, you know, traveling with with force plates and and those types of things and getting a player to come off court and and, and jump and you know maybe in the too hard basket, maybe not. Um, so when you have opportunities to answer those questions, yeah, you, you would like to like to take them. Um, and then understanding the impact when you are perhaps able to collect that information is it can help shape your program. So if we know that the game actually does potentiate the nervous system, then what's the impact of strength training post-game? Probably you're actually capitalizing on what the game has already already done. But if the game is is fatiguing, you may shy away from from certain things or select other methodologies to keep uh, keep the keep the needle ticking forward. Um, so in answer to your set to the second question there, the it's pretty common for NBA players to complete strength training sessions post game, um, and you've always put that down to the schedule. Again, with with how many games there are and and the rare incidents to the rare ability to to train on a, on a training day. I think from from memory, I, I I could be totally wrong here, but I think there was one season where over a course of, of the year we had maybe seventeen practice sessions, including preseason, and and preseason was four or five days in length. Um, so you don't have a huge ability to to push the needle forward during those days. So you have to capitalize on your, make the most of your ability to do that post, post game. So, and so you do it, you put those sessions there because that's what the schedule dictates, but understanding exercise selection or, or methodology as a result of that came second. So the intervention strategies certainly evolved as we understood, you know, what what happened to players um, and not just happened to an NBA player, say, in general, but also then what would happen to, 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 to certain athletes and, and, and you know, um, during certain, certain phases of the year and if they would you know, potentially be playing high minutes versus lower minutes and then, you know, simple manipulation of, of volume and intensity of exercises or even lift modality could, could potentially change as well. Again, still pushing the needle forward so that you're looking to optimise that that adaptation, but without changing too much too, so that when the athlete comes in post-game and you've got 30 minutes, particularly on the road, because the, the, you know, the hurdle will sound and the coach will come in and do his post-game address and then there's media and showers and food and your wheel's up 90 minutes after a game and you have to lift on occasion, you can't take an hour. 
you have to be very short, sharp, concise, and 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 very precise with what you're doing. So, not having so much variability and and variety with say exercise selection, so the athletes know what they're doing, but then having subtle changes that are manipulated based on what the game tells us is uh, is obviously really critical. What changed throughout your time in Orlando with your thought process around that post? game then those post-game sessions meant you said the word precision or precise did that did that get sharp like did the, did the needle get the arrow got sharper in terms of your programming for that that time and what did it look like i mean we had Corey schlesinger on the the podcast a while ago who spoke i don't want to mention it because i think he hates been becoming this guy but the the fixed fixed resistance machines been a larger part of his post-game uh, programming than maybe what people would expect just take that technical element away but actually trying to get specific adaptations it'd be in- interesting to get your insights of how your yeah, philosophy developed across your time i think the the simplest way to answer that question is you would have to look at what we would travel with post um to complete weight sessions post game and and it was also largely influenced by covid because you couldn't share facilities and and or and or equipment with the opposition team and every every team has to provide the opposition with a, a cart which has you know some, some dumbbells and a barbell and you know, swiss balls and you know, some some bare essentials to you know, to get a stimulus um so initially that was sort of all we all we would really utilize and and there's also some some facilities have a more structured weight room as opposed to as opposed to others. So you would also be possibly selective of where you would do your strength sessions based on equipment that you have available. And, and again, the schedule would dictate that. Uh, year, the first part of my second year, it was the same because it was pre-COVID. But then once we entered the, the COVID times, and you know, the health and hygiene was obviously at, at the height everyone's concerned and you may be in arenas where you could share weight facilities with the opposition team that was that was now a no-go so in that my third season the 2019-2020 season so 20 no, so 2020-2021 season um we were traveling uh still playing you know in a way arenas some with fans some with no fans based on local you know, state rules and regulations and what have you and but we would travel with upwards of 300 kilo weight olympic barbells um you know k boxes just whatever we could to to get the right stimulus for those guys in those in those lifts um we also had the luxury of the way that the schedule was set up is that the league tried to minimize the amount of travel that you were doing so if you were playing new york you'd probably play the knicks and You'd also play Brooklyn within the same little window, so you weren't flying back and forth and, and what have you. So that was nice in a lot of ways. But then as we transitioned in the, into the final, you know, my final season there, it was trying to find a solution that would still serve serve the right purpose and utilising, you know, whether it was an isometric stimulus or a mechanical stimulus, how do you do the same thing? And, and, and um, Matt stumbled across a, a piece of equipment that we we trialed and, and was was really, I think, quite successful and portable and 
and still provided a heavy enough strength stimulus for those guys to complete um, post post game. And um, it, it again, it, it it did the did the job in keeping players available to play and available to available to train. So I think yeah, the evolution of the equipment that you travel with kind of answers the question as far as how precise where you are you with your prescription because you you kind of work out what you don't what you need and what you actually don't need and yeah, if if you know the tools that you have in the toolkit and and the job they're going to fix then you know to grab you know the 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 12 inch or the, the phillips head versus the flathead screwdriver for example so it, it's just those little things that you that you that you start to pick up on and part of that is just being in the environment and developing your own you know, heuristics and intuition as well is that piece of equipment going to stay secret with Matt? Uh, Vitruvian was what it was called. So okay. there, it's it's a similar to say a tonal, um, one of those okay. wall mounted yeah. machines, but it's on the it's it's on the floor. Um, magnetic resistance is is what it's based on, um, and unlike some of the other pieces, can go up to you know, two hundred kilos worth of worth of resistance. So quite quite a heavy. You know, regardless of who you are, that's heavy for anybody. So it can still it can still serve a purpose. And uh, from memory, it, it's they they primary they're primarily for you know, domestic use. But it, it and and to, to steal a line from Tabs here, you know, being innovative is is perhaps just finding a a, a better a better solution to a pre existing problem. And, and even though that was nothing new and and, and overly crazy it just it served a purpose and did, yeah did the job what's it called mate just say that name again vitruvian vitruvian form so australian company based out of perth right i'd like to go back to the assessment side of things and maybe get a couple of examples obviously not mentioning players names not putting you in uncomfortable positions that you don't particularly want to be in but just going back to the assessments that you conducted how if and how those actually related and led on to changes in the interventions that you uh, prescribed for these athletes, and if there's any examples or theoretical examples, that would be that would be great if possible. Yes, yeah, so I think, I mean, jumping running based sport, the incidence of we all know that you know, tendinopathy, for example, is is quite prevalent in basketball, volleyball, netball, court sports. So, you know, regardless of what assessment, whether it be through focal loading, through a isometric or an IKD or through a Nordic or whatever you're going to be looking at, you know, what's the capacity and what's the expression of that change in, in perhaps tendon property? Um, and then giving more targeted intervention strategy based on how it's expressed. So if uh, if you're seeing you know, glaring asymmetries with say jump strategy and they're perhaps trending negatively, then what decisions are you making in order to to impact that? So whether it's the use of say BFR, you know, pre or post session for an analgesic analgesic effect or, or hormonal, um, how are you utilizing those those strategies? And then again, if it's uh, say an unreactive tending tendon, are you using yielding or quasi isometrics you know, these types of questions that you can start to start to start to answer and obviously then as as you see responses progress along that continuum to to again push the needle in the right direction interesting so just to 
go and maybe we've we've cut this. It may be just a um, almost a rehash of what we said. No, 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 absolutely. I mean, we could. I'm just conscious of putting you in positions that you don't want to be in based on previous employer Uh, and all that kind of stuff. The other, the other part of it too, I guess, is is take take a take a tendon or just just anything for for example that the if there's variation if there would be variation in uh, in load from a game you know how is that expressed with say EDRFD you know, your, your ability to stop and on on a limb um, and whether that's a, again a change in strategy or a change in output what strategies again are you, are you using there? So if an athlete typically responds because they play say high minutes, but for a reason, whether it be coach selection or injury or whatever it might be, they, they may have been substituting for a maybe better player and they've dropped back down the rotation, but you still want to keep that capacity high, then you're simply going to be putting more potentially EDRFD, jump landing drills, into their post-workout session so just those little subtle things but again understanding what you're looking at why you're looking at it and how how it's expressed in a game is really really critical there again the the question that came to mind you said if you were going to go walk into the weight room in orlando you'd see quite a i don't know if you would use the word simple but uncomplicated program however there was a lot of thought that went behind each programming decision if someone wants to walk into that weight room when you were there was it would they see multiple programs going on depending on very very different programs going on depending on the individual or would they see quite a generic program with minor tweaks i think this is something that the individualization um conversation is one that has come up all the time in the podcast with very individualized training that the 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 thought that everyone has this remarkably different set of exercises, set of loading parameters, all that kind of stuff. But in practice, does that actually happen? Is that actually, is that actually needed within the environment that you're working in? I think it works regardless of what environment you're working in. I think it works if you're one-on-one or if you have like a, a, a the uh, say NSCA rule of five to one, you know, it's a coach to sorry, athlete to coach ratio. Like you, you can, you could do it. Uh, where it gets tricky is again time. I think the more the more you individualize a program, the more individual individual coaching that you have that you have to do. And if that's not in your capacity based on athlete to staff ratios, or in our case, time, you know, you ask the question of where can I get the most bang for your buck. So you would perhaps walk in and see you know, a very a very simple, as a simple program with a generic exercise classification or selection, but subtle changes in certain aspects of certain drills or reduction of, say, plyo drills or more plyo drills. Or you know, if an athlete is perhaps more strength dominant and is a strength responder, well, then they're going to be more strength biased. Even if you say using VBT, you know, your targets that you're prescribing are going to be more geared towards what they would need, whether you, every athlete could be could be trapped by deadlifting, but their VBT target is going to be more suited to what they need versus someone who's going to be, say, on the strength speed or speed strength 
uh, side of things. So again, if you bird's eye view, every athlete may be completing almost the same exercises, but those subtle differences in in programming, I think, make the differences there with being an individualized uh, approach. And I think, as I said, uh, the only way I think you can really, really do it and provide high quality coaching is in those one-on-one or you know one-to-five situations. Just to round up, last couple of minutes. If you were to go back into that environment or reflecting on your time there, I suppose is a better way to frame it, reflecting on your time there, is there anything that you would do differently now coming out of it, reflecting on it, think about what you did, think about what you didn't, think about the decisions you made, didn't make? What would you do differently, if anything? That's a really good question. The the beginning, this is maybe a combination of hard skill and just me as, me as a person, I totally underestimated the the impact it would have on me you know, emotionally um, moving moving overseas and and setting up my life for myself and my wife you know, by, by myself and, and going into a, a foreign country, even though it's English speaking, and, you know, house, car, bank accounts, you know, all those things that I didn't, even consider until I actually got there that I wish I had to be more prepared for and understood more about the processes in which I needed to go through to do that. And and, and the club were, were outstanding in, in helping me do that. But I was also the first foreign employee within the basketball operations department. So they were learning the processes too because um, it's obviously different for, for players with different visas and all those types of things. The second thing I would go back and and invest more time in before going over is having a better understanding of the medical system and and initially my role as a performance and rehab coach with the directions with the directive to come in and and make change to to rehab processes and and some of those bits and pieces i had no idea that there was an athletic trainer and a physical therapist so understanding what what their specific roles are along a rehab continuum how do you maximize their skill sets? And then you throw a, you know, a, a rehab coach on top of it, which I think if you're in a, an Australian setting, you, you're someone with a, a strength conditioning background with a better understanding of, of loading adaptation and, and you take on-field sessions or on-court sessions and all those types of things. But in that environment, it, it's, it's facilitated differently and I wasn't aware of that. So I've admitted this on, on a, a few occasions now and that was something that I wish I had have gone back in and invested in my own education earlier simply because the progress that we made could have been made earlier on and that's a that's something i wish i could have gone back and yeah if i had my time over i'll do that differently nice cool right mate if anyone wants to reach out to you have a little chat around water polo nba whatever it is where's the best place for people to catch you uh i've got all the socials twitter instagram Twitter handles at Nate Spencer, Instagram is at Performance Coach Spencer, or just through my NSWIS affiliated email address is the other way to get in touch with me. But either either one of those is probably the best best way to best way to go about it. I'm not as active on those things as I probably could be, and it's definitely an endeavour of mine to dive into that space a little bit more. But uh, yeah, that's probably it. Nice, mate. 
Well, thank you for being so open and honest about your time in the NBA and, and what you're doing now and all that kind of stuff and the reflections that you've had since since leaving. Really appreciate it. And obviously all the technical stuff in terms of monitoring profiling as well. So uh, really appreciate you coming on. Great to chat to you in this capacity versus just WhatsApp messages and WhatsApp voice notes. So I appreciate your time and uh, look forward to keeping in touch. All right. Thanks, mate. Appreciate the invite. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for tuning in to episode 424 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to Nathan for coming on and being so open about his time at the Orlando Magic and his reflections on that time there. Also, big thanks to Play, to Hawking Dynamics, and to Kitman Labs for sponsoring this episode today. I really do appreciate all their support for the podcast, and also yours for continuing to tune in every week as I speak to practitioners from all over the world. Oh,